Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm pleased to have with me today on Retina Synthesis, Dr. David Eichenbaum, who is a partner at Retina Vitreous Associates of Florida, and who is a collaborative associate professor of ophthalmology at the Morrisani College of Medicine at the University of South Florida. David, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thank you. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you, Carmen, and good afternoon. You gave a, a very um, uh, interesting uh, talk at the American Academy of Ophthalmology Subspecialty Day about uh, the long-term visual and anatomic significance of intraretinal and subretinal fluid in eyes treated with brolozizumab. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what you've concluded? Sure. So we did a post-hoc analysis kind of in two parts. I did the first part of it at ASRS and the second part, which was kind of the, the zinger, if you will, at uh, the subspecialty day of American Academy of Ophthalmology. And we looked at the presence or absence of all fluid, interretinal fluid, and subretinal fluid over time. And the, the takeaway in kind of top line post hoc analysis fashion is that over time, longitudinally, the patients who are the driest or absolutely dry, regardless of fluid compartment assessed, have the best visual acuity consistently over time, which is, of course, at odds with other data sets that we've seen, other post hoc and a couple of prospective analyses looking at patients who either tolerate or retain subretinal fluid actually doing better than those who are dry. Our post hoc analysis stated the opposite that patients do best when there is an absence of subretinal fluid and vastly superior when there is an absence of intraretinal fluid, which I think everyone agrees with. Mm -hmm. um, there was, there's been lots of data from the Hawk and Harrier studies about intraretinal and subretinal fluid. And one of the uh, previous studies suggested that early absence of subretinal or intraretinal fluid is associated with a very good visual prognosis long-term. Uh, how does your study fit in with that observation? Yeah, it kind of fits in with that observation, which is actually a duplicate of an observation, which I published on with Mike Singer and Rishi Singh, looking at the view one, view two data set, looking at early dryness versus later dryness in the aflibercept registration trials. And it all kind of fits together. You know, your patients that are your home runs clinically, the ones that you're just thrilled to see are the ones that dry up and stay dry. They're dry after one shot or three shots and they stay dry throughout. Now we didn't split those patients out in this post-hoc analysis, which we did over the full two years of the data set. But it makes sense that a lot of those patients who have early dryness and good visual acuity may fit into our driest group, whether they were treated with prolocizumab or aflibercept. Our analysis was treatment agnostic. It was looking more at anatomic characteristics than drug characteristics. But it would make sense that that analysis may dovetail into what we saw with fluid. Some studies have suggested that although intraretinal fluid is bad, subretinal fluid was associated with good vision in eyes. Uh, what's your commentary on, on that observation? Yeah, so that's the great and 
thrilling thing about this discussion here. I think the jury is still out on the relative beneficence or beneficial subretinal fluid. There are studies, especially the fluid study, which is a prospective study, albeit a small study and a boutique study in some ways. There was prospective data from fluid and other post hoc analyses looking at Harbor and other trials stating that subretinal fluid may actually be beneficial for vision. Well, the thing is that becomes a bit of a gray area because it has to do with how long you look at those patients for, whether they're cross-sectional analyses or longitudinal analyses, how much subretinal fluid is tolerated, and then how are those patients treated going forward after that subretinal fluid is detected and that analysis is cut, if it's a uh, cross-sectional analysis, are they treated more aggressively or had they been treated aggressively previously? The difference in our post-hoc analysis is it's longitudinal over the whole two years. And I don't know if driest is definitely best because these other studies are valid data with a similar level of evidence to our study, which state that a little bit of subretinal fluid might be best. What I do know is that in the real world, in the trenches, once you start tolerating activity. You know, it's the old give you an inch, you'll take a mile kind of thing. Once you start tolerating activity, how much do you tolerate? You know, it becomes so subjective. I think that if we strive for a generally drier anatomy, we're probably doing our patients the best service. And even our analysis showed that the fourth category, which were almost always dry, still did relatively well and much better than patients who had either subretinal or adretinal fluid at a greater and greater proportion of the visits. What was the, the scale of visual acuity benefit from totally dry and not so totally dry? How, how many, how many uh, levels of dryness did you look at in the study? So, so that's two great questions. And I'll do, answer the second one first. We had five categories that we looked at in the, the dry at every visit following loading being the driest and wet at every visit following the loading doses being the wettest in three categories between the two. And, you know, we did separate it out into all fluid, intraretinal fluid and subretinal fluid. And it's true that when we looked specifically at subretinal fluid, that was the least benefit to being completely dry. There was the least difference from the driest patients to the patients who were never dry, looking specifically at subretinal fluid and the most benefit when looking at intraretinal fluid, well more than a line of vision from always dry to never dry with intraretinal fluid. So it's probably true that subretinal fluid is the most benign fluid compartment, but our analysis implies that not completely benign and you still squeeze out more vision when you have the absence of subretinal fluid. Now, the difference between the always dry subretinal fluid compartment and never dry subretinal fluid compartment was still about a line of vision, but it got to be less than a line as you had a kind of a mixed proportion of dry and not dry subretinal patients with the ones who were always dry doing the best by a couple of letters compared to any other group. So what are the clinical implications of this study, the everyday yeah. uh, guidelines that you can derive from this study? That's always the best question because that's what we do. You know, we're here in the clinic taking care of patients. Um, and I think the takeaway is that 
when you start treating a patient, because these were treatment-naive patients in Hawk and Harrier who were treated for two years, when you start treating the patients, when you have a treatment-naive patient, when you load them up with whichever agent you're using, in this study it was prolocizumab or aflibercept, but if you're using bevacizumab or furisumab in a year, or whatever you're using, the data is applicable. This is a treatment agnostic analysis. When you're treating the treatment-naive patient, you go for dry. If you can't get them dry, a little bit of subretinal fluid is probably second best, but don't allow it to accumulate and allow them to be wet at the majority of their visits, even if it's just subretinal fluid. And of course, if it's intraretinal fluid, you strive to dry them up completely and you get more aggressive and consider switching agents and things like that. What's your uh, current approach to new eyes with neovascular AMD? Uh, enroll them in a trial. Aside from that, if you don't, you're not going to enroll them in a trial to try to do better for your patients, uh, you know, try to do better for science, and you're going to treat them in clinic. What's the clinical, the clinical course for them? What I do is I usually start the patients same day on typically an FDA-approved agent. Um, I look and see what I have as a sample. If the patient requires a sample, if the patient doesn't require a sample, I will often use an FDA-approved stock agent. And I typically treat the patients three or four times monthly, and then I start to extend them. I'm a pretty ardent treat and extender, and uh, I push them out by two-week increments at most of their visits until they're out to about 12 or 14 weeks between shots. And then we talk about either maintenance or uh, perhaps cessation of treatment, depending, of course, on response, visual acuity, other eye, tolerance of the infection, so on and so forth. And like a lot of us, the minority of my patients get out to three months or longer. Most of them are getting shots somewhere between eight and 10 weeks. But there's a huge range like we saw in Harbor. There's some patients who dry right up and never need more. And some patients who need monthly treatment with any agent essentially forever. Um, but a lot of them do need chronic treatment in one form or another. And there are no biomarkers that can differentiate the high, high consumers from the low consumers. Is that right? Great question. I don't know of any that are reliable in the clinic. That would be awesome if we could somehow figure that out. And I know we have really bright people with AI algorithms. You know, Voss Sada looks at imaging a lot. David Seraf has looked at imaging for years. And I would love to get some great minds to get together and help us come up with those. Last, last question. So we, we, we know that IRF and SRF are powerful biomarkers, but where does visual acuity fit into this picture? Yeah. In other words, if yeah. you've got great visual acuity and a little bit of IRF, do you attack or do you observe? So another great question is we are treating the vision. And I think that vision, you know, doesn't correlate to the OCT. I actually think vision is a lagging indicator, the OCT's leading indicator. And it's specifically to your question, I would say if you have a wet AMD patient and the IRF is accumulating, but the vision isn't dropping, I certainly would be a little more aggressive with that patient because you want to preserve the vision in the future. And I think that if the IRF is allowed to accumulate, that patient's more likely to suffer vision loss 
down the road that if the IRF is treated a little bit more aggressively. Now, if the patient has excellent visual acuity and you've extended them out to eight weeks and they're really happy, they're not at four weeks anymore and a little bit of subretinal fluid, I don't always contract them, but I'll tell them, you, you know, you're not going out more than eight. In fact, I'd like to see you maybe at seven weeks. And we'll take a look and see how things are doing because there is signs of activity. And we know that if the activity continues unabated, it's likely, in my opinion, based on the compendium of data, that you'll probably lose some vision over time. Well, David, this has been a great discussion. I know our audience will find it very, very useful. Thanks for your work and your insights. It's a pleasure talking with you. It's a privilege to be on this uh, webcast with you, and I look forward to collaborating in the future. Thank you, Carmen.